Hello, Harja, Gusfalche Stach, Hagan Hit, a Gran Elishot, a Blurney Bellagish, Lamhain, Claire Newhan, a Gusmohom Raddy, Johnny Dillon. Hello, Johnny. Ahoy. Ahoy to you too. I guess Mitchy Tarin Shishta or Le Philip Wedrick and Ashik Jerun the Shartnet, Hilmich Gumachatrahewold, Sula Hahu, or in Shanahas, I guess in Skilliart, a Winyan La Quetherin more in the Haven. Pilgrimages, prayers, penance, tormented medieval knights, converted pagans, banished reptiles, and you thought St. Patrick was all about snakes and shamrocks, beers and bank holidays, letting loose at Lent. I think I get a bit obsessed with alliteration. You're going to have to rein me in. I think it's one of my weaknesses. <laughs> no such thing, Karen. Far away. With our national patron's annual feast day fast approaching, Johnny and I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to take a critical look at this larger-than-life figure, Ireland's adopted son, half man, half myth. What do we really know about Patrick? Who, you, who was he? How did his story unfold? How was he remembered in folk tradition? What remains of his legacy today? As always, our exploration of archive materials has led us in surprising and unexpected directions. And I don't know about you, Johnny, but what struck me most with this topic, more than any other really that we've done, was how much of Patrick's lore I absorbed uncritically as a child, being, I suppose, so immersed in in these traditions. I know, (laughs) I've just accepted everything at face value. Yes, Granny, you know Granny. Um, (laughs) There's so much that I never actually engaged with in a critical yeah. sense but I suppose that's natural as a child and yet in the last month I've really had my eyes open to how this one body of tradition and lore acts as something of a microcosm I suppose and a prism through which we can see how Irish tradition grows and develops mutates mm. absorbs and conflates how the oral folk tradition affects the literary tradition and vice versa both weaving and threading their way through the centuries and I've really seen that in, in this one, I have to say, but we'll delve into that further and um, when we look at what happens when the lore of the saintly Patrick collides with that of Finn McCool or when he a- interacts with Dante, which will be a surprising mm. one. Um, when we rid ourselves of silly snakes and the more, I suppose, modern, kind of facetious elements of the lore. Indeed, and out they go. Out they go. And instead we'll engage with the far more ancient Alphashtina and the more, um, I suppose, traditional lore that grew up kind of surrounding this figure. So when we dig down into what these beliefs and stories are really telling us, not just about this man, but about how living tradition develops through time, its causes and effects. And by the end of the hour then, hopefully we'll be in a position to drown the shamrock on Saturday in the full knowledge of why we're actually doing it. (laughs) But before we jump in, um, we wanted to add a special note to this podcast. Yeah, to this particular one, because I suppose there's element of sadness around the collection um, these last couple of days in that a, for, a close friend of ours of the collections here, a colleague, uh, passed away there on the morning of the uh, 8th of March. Um, Finbar Boyle, who was another um, renowned Irishman. He was, Patrick, that's lovely, yeah. Who was, yeah, an expert in traditional traditional song, an expert in song and singing a, a hilarious wit and a character as well. But yeah, we wanted to dedicate this um, podcast to, to him to his, his memory and at the end as well for any listeners who, who should hang on we have a fantastic song a, a recording of Finbar singing in 1984 a song that he wrote himself the raid on Oni's Bar which is just hilarious and it also gives a good sense of the, the man himself Lovely. but um, yeah I was very glad to meet him. Met him saw him last in November or December when there was an event for uh, another the late great Tom Munley the mm. last full, full-time song the collector who's working here for the collection um down in County Clare, collected huge amounts of, 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 of ballads and folk songs and so on. And there was a 10-year anniversary for an event for Tom, and Finbar was the MC at it, and he was brilliant. But we had some pints and so on afterwards. It was great chatting to him. But uh, when I went to introduce myself to him, and having met him before, he cut me off because he was like, oh, the podcast. He, he'd been listening to the podcast. Ah, oh, lovely. He was delighted. So ah. I was floored. I was, I couldn't be honest, happy out. We had a great chat, but, um, but yeah. Anyway, hopefully it's nice how we remember. Is. I think it's one of those great traits of the collection that it is such a small team, and over the years, it's a very personal it's collection. Yes, yesterday, I was looking because we scanned that image and put it on, on the Facebook page mm-hmm. and made an announcement about it. Um, and I was looking at the photographs down in the archive of some of the crew, and you had in I think there was some event in in a, at a in Dublin, the Deer Park at a, a bar, some, a retirement event. I think mm-hmm. I think it was for for Finbar or Leo Cordoff or something like that. And um, you had all the heads there. Kevin Danaher, though, Sean and Sulo on as well, and then the likes here, Barbara and, and yeah. all of them, and Rina, and all, all of the kind of the heads that we'd know from here, whatever. But it's amazing just to see that 
that thread, those different generations, but then also just the, how lucky are the people we meet. I know, well. yeah, they're a special bunch. They're really, I don't yeah, know how incredible. we were let in. Well, I don't even know we're here. As long as they don't discover us, we'll be all right. They're still broadcasting from from the (laughs) cupboard here, yeah. But um, so anyway, we'll dedicate this to to Finbar's memory. Yeah, Yeah, may he rest in peace. Indeed. But um, yes, shall we hammer along to the good saint? We will indeed. Shall we pop in and deal with the more historical overview of what we we think we know about Patrick, first of all? Yes, Um, that'd be worth, worth taking a look at. Yeah, I mean... Also, I think I should first also mention to listeners to try and get some sort of picture. This happens every week where on your side of the table, it's the most immaculate and neat, fantastic to view what you mean array of, of details and notes. And then I have a share, a, a heap of papers, books. I can't remember what I brought and uh, yeah, notes and things that I can't read. Yes, but it's all in your head, Johnny. That's the terrifying yeah, it's, thing. It's, it's, I don't know if it's, it's um, but um, yeah, the historical Patrick, I suppose, um, well, it's hard to kind of pro- this part part of it kind of like you were mentioning earlier. Say the difference between the interplay between the literary and then the folkloric traditions and the myth and the historic figure. The the Patrick's mission is typically kind of um, viewed in Ireland or or associated with the dates of the year four thirty two to four sixty one. That was the date of his mission. Mm. And we have um, a couple of sources in the early literature. We have two two sources from him: his his confessio. That's right. And his letter to Caroticus, which yes. is a letter to a a chieftain who stole away some of Patrick's converts. converts, and so he's he's greatly displeased about this. But then, apart from so, that's that's the the uh, the, the the kind of material by Patrick's hand himself. And then, apart from that, we have later um, uh, kind of lives of the saints. Uh, one of which was written by Tirachan, mm-hmm. who's the the monk in Sligo, um, and another which was written by Murhu. Um and these two seem to draw on an earlier work which has now disappeared and gone by an Ulton, who was an abbot at the monastery that Saint Patrick apparently founded in in, in Laos. Um, and so this is kind of thought to have been maybe been written in the early seventh century, mm-hmm. and then these later. Um, lives of St. Patrick by Tirachan and by Murahu were written um, kind of in se- centuries after that, basically. Um, so there, there's material featuring St. Patrick and a lot of the lore regarding him and his, his kind of his battle with pagan chiefs, chieftains and his, his miracle working and so on and so forth there. And should we just say, because I always think this is crucial, that you always need to be looking at who's writing about him because they all have their own agendas, these later chroniclers. So you've got the likes of Tirachan, who mm. is... Um, claiming Patrick for Connacht, you've mm-hmm. got Murrahu who's pl- claiming him for Ulster, mm. and then later ones, for example, Behef Wedrick, who is claiming him for Munster, and all his kind of activities in, and itineraries in those areas. Yeah. And thus it makes him very much a national that's, saint that's, then. Yeah, that's, good. that's, what, that's, makes how the, it, yeah, that's what makes him the national figure, as opposed to one saint yeah. localised with a certain locality, as in Justin Mayo, or Justin Munster, or Justin Munster. But he becomes yeah, this national saint, and they invent in these in these... Uh, lives of his, these tours he does, imaginary tours of Munster or whatever. And we'll look later on then at, at some of the instances or that local parishes would often slag one another by saying he never visited your area and so on and so forth. True. But um, you have those those lives of his by Murchun and Tirachan, as you mentioned, with their own kind of biases or inclinations, whatever, um, and his confessio and his letter to Croticus. And then you also have um, the Colloquy of the Elders, which is an amazing and interesting kind of text which falls under the corpus really of the Fenian cycle. Which kind of the the lore and narratives that relate to Fionn and the Fianna, that kind of the poet seer warrior figure, uh, pre-Christian kind of pagan warrior hero who leads a band of uh, warriors around the country mm-hmm. basically as they go hunting and banishing um, monsters from lakes and stuff like this and and, and composing poems and having a general time of it whatever, um, and in the Colloquy to the Elders that's a tw- it's a twelfth century um, text. But it's found in the Book of Lismore, which mm-hmm. is a 15th century text. I never know how, how they're able to date the language so specifically. It's amazing to me, really. But they can say, oh, this is clearly a kind of 12th century set text. It's clearly a discipline. Yeah, yeah, we're not claiming any um, specialism in this at all. Zero. Absolutely yeah, no zero. But uh, this is, this is, this is uh, the, the, what you'd often find, say, in later manuscripts. Maybe there's a manuscript from the 15th century, but within it there might be mm. a text which has been copied, and the language is obviously that of the 12th or the 8th century or something, so it can be kind of dated in that way. Um, but the Colic of the Elders is where St. Patrick meets um, uh, Oshin and Kilti, these kind of the last of the Fianna, these giants, kind of uh, the, the pre-Christian figures. 
uh, and it's quite a kind of light-hearted and jovial um, text really and Patrick is kind of inquiring about the Master lies, what did they do and what was their life like basically. So those are the, the texts but that they, they blend the kind of this this mixture of, of kind of myth and then the historic or whatever. But as for Patrick himself, um, he was born into a kind of a pretty well-off Romanized uh, Kind of, I guess it was Romanized Celt, Celtic family in somewhere in Western Britain. Mm. It's very hard to locate it, because I know from the bits that I was reading, it was essentially all we actually know about Patrick, of what he tells us himself, are in those two documents you mentioned, it, yeah. the Confessio and the Letter to Croticus. And so Owen McNeil, who was the great Irish historian mm. um, of the 20th century, wrote quite a bit about the patrician legend. Um, and he was trying to locate his native place. So he did a lot of detailed analysis of raiding patterns, which we were speaking about at the time. It was <coughs> fascinating in mm-hmm. how the Irish pillaged. Um, oh, left, right and centre. Left, yeah. right and centre yeah. along Western, the British, or what was then Britain, um, for slaves for their own masses. Yeah, Dublin was a huge um, uh, city for, for, for um centre of uh, slave trade uh, back in the day, as it were, yeah. So once the oppressor as opposed to the oppressed. It's absolutely, yeah. It's important to bear that in mind mm. as well, because if you go back to this, there were these raiding parties, there were tributes and being exacted from towns in Britain and so on. You had, you had tribes in, in Britain um, asking or looking for the help of, of um, kind of Roman legions and so on to protect them from these raiding kind of hordes and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting and kind of complex narrative that often, um, I suppose... It kind of slightly undercuts maybe some of the other versions that you'd know. But Patrick was stolen as a slave by when the Irish from Britain. Or so we're told. When he was age. 16, apparently, yeah. And from relative wealth and um, and kind of material comfort, really, he found himself suddenly um, in a strange land, uh, tending to kind of these flocks and so on as a, as a slave, slave, sleeping out under the kind of, you know, open canopy of the stars and kind of uh, wandering around in hardship, basically. A fact which, um, I suppose had a huge impact on, on the on the young Patrick for those those years that he was in captivity. Owen McNeil as well, there's a book of his Celtic Ireland and he apparently th- there's some suggestion from the word that was used, I think it was Fuchel, um, for the wood mm. that Patrick apparently spent time in. And and certain scholars have interpreted this as a huge kind of tract of land in Mayo that he was in captivity. But Owen McNeil um disputes that fact basically by saying that the word itself, Fuchel, I mean, just means little forest, minor forest kind of thing. So that it can't necessarily be derived that where the geographical area was of, of, of Mayo necessarily. But that, that was, that's the common assumption in many times that, that this is where he spent at least a portion of his captivity, basically, uh, from his, when he was 16 years old. I have a, 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 there's a little piece here from a book, Earlier Saints by John J. O'Reardon. It's a nice little book. Um, and it describes... Patrick in some of his, his six years um, of slavery. Um, but it says here, at, at 16, Patrick had grown up on account of the, the situation in which he found himself. Boredom had vanished. There was determination and direction in his life, and God was at the heart of it. And many years later, in his confession, this is the document that we made mention of earlier on, he wrote, My faith grew stronger and my zeal so intense that in the course of a single day I would say as many as a hundred prayers and almost as many in the night. This I did even when I was in the woods and on the mountains. Even in times of snow or frost or rain, I would rise before dawn to pray. I never felt the worse for it, nor was I in any way lazy, because, as I now realise, I was full of enthusiasm. So he's describing his, his part of his kind of six years in slavery on the mountain or whatever. And this is what kind of, I suppose, sharpened his mind towards uh, yeah, consideration of unseen reality and prayer and so on and so forth. Uh, but then he, is, he, he managed to escape. Mm. And the, the common kind of, uh, I suppose, what we understand is that he had to travel hundreds of kilometres, managed to get a boat to the continent mm. with great difficulty, uh, wound up in captivity somewhere else for another couple of months, and then eventually got back to Britain to his family. Um, but while he was in the continent, um, he, he, he received in a dream or a vision uh, somebody bringing him letters, all containing the voices of the Irish. Mm. And, and he had a dream asking where the Irish came, and they asked him, that he would walk once more among them, basically. So he decided, right, I have to go back to that place where I was a slave, having a terrible time, and uh, and he did. And then in in his confession, in that the document, he kind of calmly states how he baptized thousands and kind of chieftains and kings and so on and so forth. Um, so I suppose the in, the interesting thing, I guess, is is how this figure then becomes a national kind of patron and and, and patron saint of the country as he has. 
Um, but it might just be, because I pop in there, was one of the things I found really interesting about this topic was the idea of two Patricks. Mm. Now, for historians who would have um, studied this, they'll be like, well, yes, I, I, we've been over this. But just no, I, for, don't, I don't know. Well, yeah, you were saying this, I don't know what this Yeah, this, for those who aren't um, familiar, it might just be, I'll flag it up and then you can certainly go and um, dig a little deeper. But in again, tying, tying in with what Owen McNeil was saying, who was kind of thought of as a well-known patrician scholar, but then in 1942, along comes Thomas Francis O'Reilly, or T.F. O'Reilly. Oh, yes. Who we often hear about in, when studying Irish history. And caused a bit of a hoo-ha when he published a paper um, which became a book called The Two Patricks. And basically, he posited the theory that there were two men. So one called Palladius, who mm. was said to have arrived a year before Patrick in Ireland, 431 AD. And that the lore and the legend of one has become conflated with the other, mm -hmm. thus creating the Patrick um, in inverted commas that we know today. Mm -hmm. So Palladius, from what we see, there is a, a historical record, we're told, that now it's written in Latin. I won't even attempt because I'll only embarrass myself. But roughly it translates to um, it's the religious order, I suppose, that he's given Palladius to travel to Ireland. So it says from Pope Celestine I, that he sends Palladius to the Irish, believing in Christ, Pope Celestine sends Palladius as the first bishop. Mm. And that's 431 AD, which, number one, that makes you think, right, so it wasn't Patrick who first came to Christianise the Irish. Mm -hmm. And number two, the fact that it says to the Irish believing in Christ, it means that we are to assume that there were those who already believed mm -hmm. before any of these came. So again, we are not experts in this, lies. but oh, all lies. But I just thought it was so curious to um, yeah. raise the fact when looking at St. Patrick to remember Palladius uh, as this figure who may or may not have had aspects of his life um, conflated mm. with Patrick's. And then even as we travel to Scotland as well, Palladius pops up in that he is associated with the northeast in areas around um is it Fordoon and Ockenblay, hmm. that they have churches and that they used to have what was called a Pauli Fair or a Pauli Well, which people associate with Palladius as hmm. well. Very Amazing. interesting. So Spare a thought. Spare a thought for Palladius, yeah. who was the... Um, Forerunner. Indeed. I was going to kind of give some metaphor about a band and a lead singer and somebody on the drums. But anyway, <laughs> well, um, I don't know how that was going to work. <laughs> we'll, we'll skip over that. It was we'll going to make sense. Silence. But yeah, so the two Patricks. <laughs> Um, when thinking of Patrick, don't forget Palladius. Yes. Actually, as you mentioned as well, the, the, that's really interesting that he, that there's wells to him up in Scotland. Because if you, th if you think about it, um, there was the kind of the, the flourishing of monasticism that occurred in Ireland and that gave Irish Christianity its particular flavour that mm. like, I think kind of manifested from, from the 6th century on, maybe as opposed to other kind of parochial structures, maybe, of, or ways of organising um, the 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 in the ways that the church organized itself, the bishops and so on, that the 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 abbey and the abbot were the main kind of features of Christian tradition in in, in Ireland in mm. early Ireland, but there was a kind of arc then that moved all the way from from Ireland up into Scotland, and then down again even into the north northern kind of regions of Britain and England and so on. That there's that kind of interplay of, of uh, monasticism and so on spreading across, but uh, yeah, that Palladius is is a strange. Um, uh, it's curious it, 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 did, yeah. it caused a lot of um they, they fell out about it they did yeah. and there was it was in the papers because i saw it in the scrapbooks and Amazing. you had the likes of you know flan o'brien commenting on it and um, brian o'nolan you had james plunkett um, writing about it and saying are we to believe that there are two patricks or there's no patrick at all mm -hmm. is there is there a god so um yeah it was a real who's who's that having that crisis who, who was that was um james plunkett amazing right so yeah it was it really did in the 40s caused in, in academic circles certainly and mm. um, among the folk they were probably fine with patrick as he was but it's interesting i think yeah know. the symbolism kind of becomes absorbed and it doesn't really it, it becomes a symbol of something that's broader than the historic individual so it's a different sort of truth mm -hmm. really to which people are kind of or excuse me are devoting themselves or praying and so on but um but yeah, the, the kind of early historic figure is it's very difficult to prize apart the, the kind of the mythic and the folkloric and the mm -hmm. historical and so on. Um, but I suppose some of the one of the should we kind of talk about maybe the, the aspect of kind of um, of pilgrimage and so on? We were that was going says. to be the next because we've, we've kind of been looking at the, the history and then and some the, of the arrival. literary sources that a person can kind of go to. Basically, yeah, it's true. And then kind of the arrival of Christianity and what Christianity in those terms 
in Patrick's time meant and the birth of the pilgrimage. The main, I suppose, the most um, renowned really pilgrimage that exi- has existed from the Middle Ages and still is in, is in kind of, I suppose, a state of rude health today is that of uh, the Reek, mm-hmm. Reek Sunday, Kruchforig and Reek from, from Rick as in a kind of a bundle or, or something, whatever. Kruchforig is the uh, Patrick, the holy mountain in County Mayo. And on the last Sunday in July, in Garland Sunday, tens upon tens of thousands of, of pilgrims ascend, some of them barefoot on this really steep and rocky um, and, and kind of hard mountain mountain to climb, uh, especially, you know, people doing it on their knees and so on. And kind of and, 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 uh, so it was a, it was a renowned uh, kind of site of pilgrimage. But there's also an enormous amount of, of archaeological evidence that would suggest that the the site of Cropatrick has been a holy mountain since at least you know the Neolithic or Bronze Age or Neolithic period, really, because all around this mountain, which is situated in the northwestern kind of quarter of Ireland by Clue Bay and County Mayo, in a beautiful part of the country, all around this mountain, which stands in kind of stark opposition to the the land all around it, um, are, are kind of cairns, burial mounds, tombs, uh, rock art, and so on, all all around the the the, the, um, the, the base of this mountain, basically. Um, which would suggest it as a kind of as a holy site or kind of a a, um, a sort of supernatural or ritual landscape, for want of a better word, of one sort or another, whereby in certain instances maybe you stand at a burial mound and you can observe the mountain, you know, X amount of miles away from you. But it was noticed relatively recently that I think on the 18th of April and perhaps the tw- was it the 24th of August maybe, a date 18th of April, a date at the end of August. When you stand at a certain rock that has rock art on it, looking at, at Crowpatrick at the mountain, the sun rolls down the shoulder of it. It, it kind of it looks as though it's rolling along. Oh, as the sun sets. As the sun sets, oh, yeah. I see. So you have a kind of, kind of, I suppose, archaeological remains and, and ruins and sites in the landscape that are aligned to this mountain, uh, which I suppose would have seem to have this this kind of ritual or, or symbolic significance. But it's also interesting when you take the date of the 18th of April and, and the, the other date, I'm not sure, exactly sure, but the 24th of August, I think. And then if you incorporate into that the winter solstice, mm-hmm. uh, you have a neat triplication kind of, or, or division of the year into three okay. as well. So there are all these kind of sites around Crowpatrick that would suggest it as a sacred landscape um, prior to the arrival of Christianity. Uh, and it's not the only one. The Sugarloaf is the mountain under which I grew up very close in County Wicklow in the eastern quarter of Ireland. Uh, that that's the same. It has these similar kind of sites all around it, but it doesn't seem to have made the jump into Christian tradition of, oh. of pilgrimage and these kind of sites, whatever. Um, but enormous amounts of pilgrims ascend to that mountain. A chapel was built on the top of it, um, and Saint Patrick was said to have experienced his kind of forty days of uh, forty nights of, of horror on that mountain, basically. As, as during he went. Lent, wasn't it? During Lent, yeah, he made his Lenten observance there. So, like, um, you know, Moses kind of communing with. God on Mount Sinai or, or Christ in the desert and so on. St. Patrick, it fits into that, that same kind of framework, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's overlaid over this pre-Christian tradition. So the holy mountain that's ascended today in the name of Christ is one that would have been ascended in the name of you know other deities. For example, Lou and Crum Dove mm-hmm. did battle on that on that mountain at harvest time as well. So. And we'll actually come to Crum Dove shortly <coughs> because he is one of the pagans so-called or said to be converted by Patrick mm-hmm. and Garland Sunday is known as Ona Cromdu, mm-hmm. which is. But apparently, I read somewhere that true Mayo locals would say that they climb it on the Friday before Garland Sunday. But traditionally, mm. anything I've read, it's always been Garland Sunday. I think yeah, Garland Sunday was typically was kind of marked the arrival of the period mm. of harvest. Um, so it was the end of kind of hungry July and so on, where the first stores were beginning to come in again after, you know, the summer was a period of, of, of hardship for, for many people across the country. Um, so at that, at that time, because the, kind of the crops and the stores are the lowest, Garland Sunday was often known as Hill Sunday, Height Sunday, Bilberry Sunday, Frothenberry Sunday, Rock Sunday, Big Sunday, Mountain Sunday. Those are just some English language words for it. And the general tradition at that time was for groups, particularly of young men and women, to... to sport and play at the tops of these mountains mm-hmm. often without the the kind of um the the i suppose uh, the eye of parents and grandparents and so on on them so they could kind of go off and have a crack themselves basically mm-hmm. um so it was a there were often kind of contests and feats of athletics and strength and so on but it was generally the last sunday but there's a bit of interplay or, or kind of back and forth and that sort of stuff all the time um but crumb to his um in his <coughs> image we see we begin to see a lot of the common motifs that we see with patrick 
in the conversion of pagans, in the kind of um, expelling of demons, demons and, so, yeah. and so on. But um, I, I just love the story of Crumdu, one of those that exists in the archive. It just shows the imagination of the storytellers mm. and kind of the stories that grew up around it because it's basically, in a, as a little synopsis, Crumdu gives um, a piece of meat to Patrick, sends it with a boy to give him, and Patrick is it writes it down, Deo Gracias. Yeah, he, he, no, he just says Deo Gracias. Oh, I see. Okay. He just uh, and yeah. Um, to, as as thanks mm. for um for the meat. Now I read those papers, but again, it it, it varies across the oh, tradition, but, yeah, yeah. but it it works both ways. Um, and so the boy comes back and Crumdu says, "What did he say? Did he give thanks?" And he says, "I didn't understand a word that man said." Um, he says, well, here, take another quarter. And he went and gave it to Patrick. And again, Patrick writes down Deo Gracias um, and brings it back. And the boy says, like, like the um, Crumdu asks, what did he say? Um, did he give thanks? And he says, I, I don't understand what he said. So he says, right, here, take the next quarter. So eventually he basically gives him a full bullock of meat, so mm. to speak, in the four quarters. And each time Patrick says thank you, but the boy doesn't understand, mm-hmm. comes back, infuriates Crumdu until eventually he says this is ridiculous not good enough mm. and pa- Patrick is brought to him and says but I did thank you in, in great terms I, I was so grateful <laughs> and he says I don't believe you and they have a bit of a ruckus and so eventually says Patrick writes down or maybe this is when he writes it down the Deo Gracias mm. three times or four times with so he's got three or four pieces of paper and he puts it on a scale mm. And he puts the meat on the other side. And lo and behold, the weight of the thanks is bigger than the, the, yeah. the weight of the meat. Yeah. And Crumb is um, converted there and then. There and then. Yeah. Um, in a moment of epiphany. Yeah. But it's just the imagination that goes into it's this. Incredible, it's yeah. incredible, yeah. It's really interesting, actually, because I was trying to remember earlier, but you reminded me of it now. The Deo Gracias that's mentioned there where Crumb gives the, the bullock and he feels as though he's being hard done by because he doesn't understand the nature of the thanks that's been given. That finds... There's an earlier reference to that to a, a pagan chieftain Dorje and and he gives him a bronze cauldron and he, he the bronze cauldron is given to him and he says Grazichan uh, is all that's written and the guy is like what the hell is Gra- what the hell so he comes back and Dorje says what did he say did he did he praise me and give me thanks and he says yeah, he just said Grazichan and they're like what the so then he takes the pot back I think Dora eventually himself gives it to him and he says Grazichan again and it's it, it's the same kind of this confusion and misunderstanding over over the the, the thanks that's been yeah. given. But we actually find reference to Patrick actually writing that in his confessio as a phrase that he actually used, uh, gratis agum, you know, as in um, uh, I, I am thankful. Agum uh-huh. is the Irish word for, it's, you know, me or I, I have or whatever, then gratis is in from the Latin, I suppose, you know. So it's it's a phrase of his that's actually written in the confession. And that Doyle then seems to become associated or become kind of absorbed in the popular tradition into that of figure of, of Crum, who represents this kind of older Crum Cruel, Crum Dove, dark, dark stooping one, oh, <laughs> as his name. That would be us in a um, few years. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's an amazing kind of, and, and there's lots of those types of, of kind of motifs that are so kind of humorous mm-hmm. in ways where there's a misunderstanding between maybe a pagan chieftain who greatly underestimates the power of this new god that yeah. he, that, or, or this new kind of system and and so it eventually then kind of comes around to to realize oh actually this is much more powerful than I, than I've than I've understood or whatever. And it's all symbolism, isn't it? When yeah, you absolutely. Dig down yeah, into yeah, it, yeah. Um, and we uh, wanted to say something, didn't you, about um the birds? Yeah, well, I suppose in in the in the lives I think in in the lives of Saint Patrick, I don't know, is it Tirachans or Murachus? In the first of them, when Patrick is on uh, the mountain for his forty days and forty nights and so on. He's he's accosted by these black birds and demons and so on, um, who are just kind of giving him a terrible time. Until eventually, uh, he casts this huge bell at them or rings it so loudly mm-hmm. or something like that, that they all flee. Um, and I think that they from that point they 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 leave Ireland for seven years, seven months, seven days, and seven nights. That's and right. They never come back again. Um, at that time, but afterwards, then uh, Patrick has an angel that's associated with him, Victor who generally speaks to him from a bush or a burning bush. Again, these kind of biblical kind of motifs that, yes. kind of, that, 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 that the writers kind of... that Were using, because that's again a source they were taking well, from. Well, as well, the you know. thing you have to remember as well is like when the, the written word comes into Ireland or the manifestation of the written world in Britain and elsewhere in Europe or whatever, it's, it's, it's a Christian mm. um, kind of technology, basically. Like you have, say, the, the kind of oem writing and so on and maybe poems and, and obituaries and so on that feature 
um, or other kind of inscriptions or whatever, but they were never they never recounted the, the the knowledge and the epic kind of bardic tradition was held by the druidic order, this esoteric kind of order who who had a taboo against writing these things down. And so in that sense, figures like Oshin and Fionn and so on, they, they live forever in a sense of their in the narratives because they're being spoken all the time. Whereas then in the colloquy of the elders, when Patrick meets Oshin and Kult and so on later on, uh, Oshin will often turn to Patrick's scribe and say, write this down, you know, because it's kind of, it's the, the, the spoken word is now meeting the written word yeah. and the pre-Christian and pagan is now meeting the, 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 the Christian or whatever. There's a changing system. But, but at this time you would have had monks and figures in these abbeys who would have been some of whom would have been deeply familiar with the knowledge of their forebears of the esoteric kind of wisdom of the druids who might have even been indoctrinated or initiated into certain aspects of those practices or whatever before then maybe becoming monks or whatever. so you would have had extremely learned people who are fond of these traditions recounting them but also incorporating these other biblical motifs that they have to kind of use to i suppose assert the supremacy of this new system mm-hmm. basically it's a um, melting pot. It becomes it really, a melting really pot is, of really sources. It really is, really is, yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. And, and so then you have this strange kind of landscape where the Christian and the pre-Christian just kind of wander around together in this strange uh, Catholic paganism, basically, for want of a better term, I suppose. That's a good old, that's the name of a band now. I'm obsessed with the bands today. I don't know what's <laughs> wrong with me. Yeah. I'd, I'd listen to that band, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I suppose the, 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 the site of the mountain becomes, I suppose, a space where... Um, it's associated with Patrick. It's it's associated with his his Lenten observance, with his part of his kind of um, penance and suffering for Ireland or whatever. Actually, and as part of that, when he comes down from the mountain, he he refuses to break his fast and he refuses to leave the mountain until he's granted by God uh, several boons for Ireland. Mm. One of which is that uh, Saint Patrick himself will judge the Irish at the last day. So when we die and, and depart and, and off we go to the other world or whatever, St. Mm-hmm. Patrick will be there to, to judge the Irish. The other thing that he, that he, he manages to get as a, um, a kind of from God, whatever, is um, that no foreign people shall ever rule Ireland forever. Mm-hmm. This is another kind of motif that's thrown in. Um, and the last one is that before the destruction and end of the world, uh, seven years beforehand, Ireland would be submerged so that it wouldn't have to face the final obliteration. That's quite worrying because we're actually becoming wetter as a nation, aren't we? We are. But and um, the coasts are kind of well, encroaching upon us. These oh, things have so been decreed by time, Claire. Time so is ticking then in that case. Argue. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, part of Patrick's particular kind of, um, I suppose, role as a saint, protective of the Irish and protector of, of Ireland, is kind of manifest after his time here at Acro Patrick. First of all, he's arguing with, with God and all of the saints, and they're all saying, no, I'm sorry, Patrick, we just can't do this for you. And eventually, um, uh, our saviour's mother, as it were, that's described in the start of, she hears, what's what's all this going on? And, you know, she comes along and Patrick explains, and then she goes and talks to God. And So God's mother eventually is the one who relents. Um, which is quite an Irish thing, I think. Isn't it? You know, the, mammy. Like the mammy has to come in and sort it out. Yeah, <laughs> sort it out for the boys. <laughs> so I suppose that's a good segue now into the one of or the second great pilgrimage that's associated mm. with Patrick, um, known as Loch Derg or Loch Jarrog in Donegal. So we're moving from Mayo in the west to Donegal in the northwest, and I'm going to read you just three little quotes first of all that really struck with or stuck with me when I was reading about Loch Derg again it's one of those familiar ideas in our childhoods here in Ireland and particularly in Donegal of Loch Derg where people would go to do penance and do pilgrimages and you just almost absorb this as a natural thing for those who are interested but the history and the lore of it is incredible as I was reading this but just to give you three little quotes so in 1617, we have a piece of writing that describes Lot Derg as a place horrible by its terrors. Its fame has been so scattered through European parts that it seems to go on wings. And then we have... This is with terror about the pl- how scary the place was. Indeed. Yeah. Lot Derg, not Donegal. Donegal, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Lovely place to go. Um, then we have a Latin text from Vienna in 1703 that says, In Connacht is St. Patrick's Reek his purgatory in Ulster Seek. So hmm. as you mentioned, St. Patrick's Reek in Mayo. And then we have Loch Derg, where his purgatory is situated hmm. in Donegal. And then one of the, from 1825 then, we have a statement, a fragment fallen from ancient time, it floated there unchanged. 
um, by a man called Darcy McGee, who was a young islander. So this... I don't quite understand the whole thing, but what is... Like, how did St. Patrick's Purgatory come about? Well, well he, he banished a, a demon from the lake. Well, this, this is it. This is, again, what we were chatting about at the very beginning of how all these stories become quite mixed and conflated and they're taken from um, historical lore and then they get mixed in with Fenian lore that comes later. Yeah. But essentially, Loch Derg is this kind of a, a medium-sized lake right. in Donegal, 13 yeah. miles in, some com- huh. in circumference, seven miles wide. And within it, you have a number of smaller islands. So the two that we're kind of focusing on today is Saints Island and Station Island. And on Station Island, we are told that there was once a cave mm. that you would enter into. And and I will come to the history of this, but that you would be terrorized by visions. Amazing. You'd love that, Johnny. Yeah. In one end, out the other. So that you would go and spend the night in here and be terrorized by visions of purgatory, basically, and that you would hopefully see the plane of heaven and do penance and gain absolution for it's your like sins. Like walking through Temple Bar on St. Patrick's Day itself. Pretty much, if you can make it out alive, yeah, yeah. no hell Seventh for you. circle of hell. <laughs> so this idea of St. Patrick's Cave, um, otherwise known as St. Patrick's Purgatory. Now, originally from the 5th century onwards, this, again, as you were saying with the, the reek and the sugarloaf, it was a very ancient site. Mm. So it would have attracted pilgrims and a great sense of reverence before the literary aspects that we'll discuss now came along. So from the 5th century onwards, you see this as being a very sacred place in the landscape um, with these associations. But in 1153, mm-hmm. the story emerges, and this is very much not based on fact. It's It's a story that someone has created <clears throat> of a knight own so it's this where my details this here this is the arthurian fellow this is the arthurian fellow so this is apparently um a knight who was enlisted in the service of the norman king of england and he had a religious reawakening and went to this island again having been aware of its um, oh, dominance yeah. already to seek penance and absolution for what he called his wicked life which has been employed from the cradle in plunder and violence amazing Amazing. So off he goes to Donegal, which, you know, you have to really think about this in terms of the 12th century Donegal. It's rural and isolated and beautiful now. But can you imagine in the 12th century what mm-hmm. that must have been like for someone yeah. getting there and going to this remote little um, island um, in the middle of this lake? To sit in a cave. To sit in a cave. Amazing. And ex- look for um, epiphanies. But the idea emerged that he went here and spent um, three nights, I believe, on the island. And his tests, once he went into the cave, he saw people being dragged through fire, people being eaten by dragons, serpents, beasts, people being held over furnaces by iron hooks through their bodies hmm. while being lashed by demons, <laughs> um, bodies being submerged in freezing waters. And then the final test, he overcomes each of these hmm. by saying something along the lines of... Um, Christ forgive me or mm-hmm. Christ be beside me, kind of invoking the Lord's name mm. and kind of embracing Christianity. And he comes to the final test, which is a bridge over um, over purgatory or whatever. This kind of, you're imagining these furnaces and flames beneath, beneath you, but it's the bridge of three impossibilities because it's too high, it's too narrow and it's too slippy. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing, just mm. honestly. See, what pe- when people the didn't have TV, the imagination... So he makes it across the bridge into the plain of paradise um, where he's given food and drink and he's with the souls that are to be saved and who will gain entry into heaven. So at this time, he is allowed back through the entryway back to reality in the kind of the upper world mm-hmm. um, into Lodur to say that he is to be free from sin now and that he must live a good and honest life. And so this story emerges and a guy called Henry Saltry, a few years later, I believe, writes the Latin account of this because like all great stories he knew someone who knew Owen Hmm. and then wrote it down but then what amazed me was this story spread like a wildfire through through Europe and it becomes from the 12th century onwards a site of pilgrimage for people from all over Europe yeah this is like the worst of the worst it wasn't just kind of the like the the the, uh, you know a relaxed Sunday barefoot uh, asceticism or whatever this is like People, wasn't there someone who murdered his son or something like that? Hardcore criminals, really apparently. Really hardened kind of... Yeah, as well uh, as nobles. So you see a lot of um, European nobles coming. But no, you're absolutely right. Uh-huh. Apparently, it drew those for whom 
penins couldn't be found anywhere else. Okay, yeah, so you can only amazing. imagine what they did. Yeah. All coming to Donegal. <laughs> God, I might be like, and they might be my ancestor. They could Johnny. be, they could God. be. Didn't speak ill of them. But, but even in one of the books I was reading, written by um, who a, Shane, a Sir Shane Leslie, who actually, I believe his family held rights over Loch Derg for a certain period of time. But even just some of the names of people who came, he's got French, he's got Swiss, he's got Hungarian, hmm. he's got Italian, he's got Dutch, English. Whoa. Um, you name it, just thousands coming over the centuries to visit this island, to do penance um, and to seek absolution. And again, kind of, there's, like, and again, we love a bit of speculation, but there are theories that because this was so well-known in early maps in Italy, kind of from the 13th century onwards, you see any representation of Ireland, you have St. Patrick's Purgatory, that's how well-known it was that's across incredible. Europe. So for these trading routes, people knew of St. Patrick's Purgatory and the, the theory, and I say theory um, with heavy we, emphasis. We mean fact. We mean fact. This is a true story. Um, some say we were the likes of Dante, um, mm. who did the Inferno. Divine Comedy and the Inferno, because it does seem so much like the other, doesn't it? Like mm -hmm. just delving into the seventh circle of hell. Was he influenced by this? And some have made the points in the material that I've been reading that his master, his mentor, um, would have written about St. Patrick's Purgatory. And, oh, I wonder, would he have spoken to Dante mm. about this? Mm -hmm. And therefore is Donegal responsible for... That's intriguing. Dante's Inferno. Now, that is speculation. But isn't it just interesting? Like, I, if you had told me, Claire, what links Donegal and Dante a, yeah. a month ago, amazing. I'd be like, I love it. it's not the heat anyway. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> but just, it's so interesting. It's incredible. It's the incredible. more you look into this. But yeah, so that is um, St. Patrick's Purgatory. We have to go where we were saying what, what failures we are as, uh, as folklorists and that we haven't been. Because you can still go for a pilgrimage there. You have to go three days and you have to walk around no sleep. Or you can do one day. You can do one day. Yeah, but, but, if you're but, just um, you in. You march about with no shoes, no sleep. You do, you do. It's kind of broken into three parts of the fast, the vigil and the station. I think you're allowed to wear shoes now, Johnny. I, I hope. No shoes. <laughs> um, I'd, yeah, I'd like to do that. I it's, it's a real, I, I think it harks back to a very primitive urge in people for asceticism and transcendence at a basic level i suppose yeah, through some form of hardship and get away and, yeah, yeah you'd love that johnny yeah. <laughs> but um one of the quotes i'll finish with um i loved from um it was one of the, the writers the books that i was reading he had spoken to a colleague of his who'd gone and he was saying that a priest had said it's not a tourist spy you know lourdes fatima even Crowpatrick, they're all joyrides when you go to Loch Derg, when you see the place, the heart dies on you. Wow. In fact, the pilgrimage is so extreme that many of us commit a sin the moment it's over. The sin of pride, that inner feeling of self-importance and superiority that I've done something you couldn't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for many over centuries, it was a place of penance and utter and extreme mm. hardship mm -hmm. um, that we very much associate with St. Patrick now. He, it became... Um, very much tied in with him that this is where he would have gone and done a fast and a, a that's that's the thing the, the specific connection to patrick is that 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 um that he had banished he banished a monster from the lake mm. which is a kind of a borrowing from even the fenian cycle lore yes. they're always banishing monsters from lakes it's what they do among among other things um but wasn't there that that was kind of one of the the legends told about him in later times that he had he had managed to to, to banish this kind of serpent this demon serpent from the lake um, into the lake. That, that he into came, the lake. Yes, that this was the um, where the the water turns red. So oh, hence Loch Darg. Yeah. So some people say that Loch Darg means the red. Um, yeah, but there's, there's an argument about the place name. Isn't exactly, it? because some say that it's and even Owen McNeil would have said originally that it's Loch Jerk of the word cave, so the the lock mm. of the cave. But there is that, as you said, this idea of as Patrick expels and um, monsters kind of across Ireland, and we see these stories in the archive a lot that it's associated with Loch Derg as well, in that he kind of banishes this monster into the lake and turns the water red. But we see that with um, Finn McCool as well. Yes, and, and it's also one of the, the kind of, I don't know if you can say misconceptions, because it's, it's a very commonly held, I suppose, idea that Patrick banished serpents from Ireland. Yes, the old snakes. The old snakes, which is actually a much later kind of, excuse me, later borrowing from printed Anglo-Norman tradition. Mm. Um, because you have people like, the writer uh, Bede or certain even kind of Greek writers and so on talking about Ireland and how it was famously snakeless mm. long before Patrick's ex existence um, but apparently 
in the course of Patrick's travels, he, he stayed on an island off the coast of France in a monastery, off the southwestern coast of France, possibly. I forget the name of the island now. And uh, the abbey in which he stayed was founded by a monk called Saint Honoratus. And Saint Honoratus in France, Leran, I think is the island, L E Lexon or INS. And Saint Honoratus had banished snakes from this island in France. This is the motif that was attached to him in his abbey. And since St. Patrick had stayed at this abbey, so we're told the Anglo-Norman or the later Norman kind of writers uh, took this motif and borrowed it and applied it to Irish tradition, but it never really focused or featured as, as a principal kind of association with them in, in, in folk tradition. True, because we never see it. I have no snakes in the archive you here that really I could get find. It as, no, but, but you find it kind of later on, I suppose, and it becomes a very common thing say, that, that we would have known, but it's very much a printed motif that comes from later medieval Anglo-Norman writers who are who are borrowing from a motif of Saint Honoratus on the island of Leran in France, uh, who himself was said to have banished snakes from that particular French island at which Saint Patrick is meant to have stayed. And that's where that motif seems to, to begin or whatever. Because as you were saying, Johnny, the the kind of the silly snakes we speak about, it's a very kind of modern literary um creation. But as you rightly noted, the it's a far more ancient idea and motif the expelling of, I suppose, monsters and reptiles in Irish lore, because mm. we've got the 7th or kind of 8th century actor, Ergus and Macleetti. You've got the 8th century, Ten Boffrey. You've got the 15th century, Fenian Lee, Shillig Schleverham. And then you've got the 16th century, Shillig Lotjerg. And this is, again, tying in with what we were saying about Finn and changing are killing monsters Mm -hmm. and banishing them into locks and turning the water red. So it's a far more ancient idea of the Allfaishtina as the reptiles as opposed to the snakes that are far more modern. Yes, yes, they are. There's a nice, I can't find the reference, but to to St. Patrick talking about banishing spirits and demons, but it says he just does that. When he first meets Oshun and Kulta, they have thousands of demons whirling about over them which they've just picked up in the course of their lives being these kind of warriors and he, he ban- they all fly off and are banished <clears throat> but there's a nice piece where kind of interplay between Patrick and he's asking about Fionn McCool and he says uh, to, to, to the followers of Fionn to Oshin and Kulte who were still alive at the time long after their age has kind of gone these huge giant men walking along with wolfhounds and so on and Patrick says to them was he not a, was he not a good lord with whom ye were Fionn McCool that is to say and it says then, upon which Creelta uttered this little tribute of praise, uh, were but the brown leaf which the wood sheds from it gold, were but the white billow silver, Finn, Finn would have given it all away. Who or what was it that maintained you so in your life, Patrick inquired, and Creelta answered, truth that was in our hearts, and strength in our arms, and fulfilment in our tongues. A fine little piece. Isn't that but Finn's generosity is kind of mentioned that thing. And it's, that's, I suppose, the tone of the colloquy is quite, of, of the other, is quite... It kind of carries on in that way. It's a very, it's very cheerful is maybe the wrong word. It's very, Patrick takes a, a fine view of these warriors. He's interested in them and he kind of, so the scribe is, again, the, the, the Christian monk scribe who's, who's dictating this material is doing so from the perspective of early Irish Christianity while also having an awareness and obviously a kind of a fondness for the tradition of his own forebears mm. being that of the Fenian cycle and so on. But it's very much the, the written word meeting the spoken word and the fact that Owen McNeil I think made this nice comparison with the idea that Fionn and Creelta and Oisin live so long that they're these kind of immortal figures because they live by virtue of their being spoken all yes. the time almost you know they're not written and then oh he lived a thousand years ago but they're frozen in text they, they all they're the ever living ones on account of their being constantly spoken into being say whereas this marks the kind of end of that where Oisin will turn to the scribe as mentioned earlier and say write this down at which point it's frozen and moves into the past in a way. Oh he's almost signing his own. In, in a way yeah yes. and it's all kind of mar- just this this idea that it's all kind of past and done. Um, but uh, there was also the, 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 the narrative surrounding St. Patrick that while he was um, he was so busy preaching he, he fell asleep and asked his servant he has a servant Benignus who, who goes around with him um, as a kind of a, a, an associate or whatever but he asks this other uh, little fellow who's with him a young fellow to watch him while he sleeps and listen very carefully to what he says and he utters three curses on Ireland in, in his sleep but the young fellow who's with him manages to kind of complete the sentence and deflects the curses so one of them goes onto the tops of the rushes for, which are always black mm. one of them goes onto the tops of um, ferns I think for the sun they're kind of wilted and brown for the same reason 
and one of them goes onto the tops of a uh, bull's horns. That's right. And they're always so these things are always black. Uh, on, a, on account of that and then when he wakes up then he says oh you saved Ireland you know, fair play to you but there's a time there's a little piece here to play um, which describes just that it's, it's, this is Tom Lockton he's recorded by Leo Corduff in 1966 uh, and this is St. Patrick and his, his three curses did you ever hear anything about St. Patrick and, and three curses something well, about he had dreamed or something about St. Patrick uh, St. Patrick when he used to when he was Sleeping out on those hills, you know, doing pinning. He had uh, his boy with him, servant boy, do you see? Yes. So he used to sleep wild, and the boy had wait waking, I believe. Yes. So anyways, he was sleeping away, and he started to dream, and he cursed three times in his dream. So the first time he cursed, the boy said, I cross, he says, I hope it'll fall on the tops of the rishes. Well, that's why, that's plain to be seen, why the tops, see, the, you never seen rishes without the tops of them. Is, there's a little bit of all the tops of them burnt to a brown colour, isn't yeah. there? Oh, oh, that's true, that's true. Well, the second time he cursed, the boy said again, I cross, he said, I hope it'll fall on the tops of the haystacks, or the corn stacks. Yeah. And on the word... You will see the tops of the stacks out in October or November, a little bit brown, a little bit at the top of them. Yeah. And the third time he cursed, the boy said again that he crossed, that uh, I hope it'll fall, he says, on the tops of the high mountains. And the tops of the high mountains, is, there isn't a bit of hate growing on them, yeah. if you notice. I, often, I noticed that on that hill above myself. Yeah. They're gone a little brown, do you know. Well, that and like down lower no. with the green heat, they're going to reddish brown. So those are Patrick's curses, which thankfully were saved by some unknown young lad. I love when you go through the stories in the archive, his associates or his assistants always change. So you go from, what was his name? Benignus was one. Um, down to Donal. Oh, Donal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And one of them um, was buried, or no, is it that near Crowpatrick, there's a cairn, there's a burial mound called Mjolnan, which is taken to mean Mjolnan, as in my Ben and my Benignus. It's a bit of a kind of tenuous link. But that was Benignus was buried on that spot, mm. you know. But he has these kind of associates that travel around with him. Whenever. But there's so much in place name lore across Ireland. Even if you were to go into Duhus.ie, our digital platform, mm. um, and check, you've got all of St Patrick's Holy Wells. You've got all of these place names with you know Down Patrick. Yeah, you name it's it. kind of impossible to cover the amount of of material that that is associated with him. But the national spread of him is is remarkable. It really is because you have so many other saints who. I've kind of garnered another type of, of devotion really for many people in Ireland for a long time, but they don't they don't have the same national spread really as as St Patrick that you know been seen to visit the whole the whole country. The, I'm from County Wicklow, south of Dublin on the eastern side of of, of Ireland, whatever. And the, the Irish name, well, the, the English it's a fun, one of those funny kind of names where the English name and the Irish name are from two separate sources. Wicklow is from Vikingslow, Viking Field, mm. uh, which shows kind of Viking invasion of that place, but the Irish word is Kilvanton. Which you can, you know, you often absorb these place names growing up and don't think about them. Absolutely. You realize it means Church of the Toothless One, which is a bizarre kind of uh, uh, name. But the story and the reason behind the reasoning behind this narrative relates directly to Saint Patrick, where when he when he arrives from Britain and, and returns to Ireland, he comes ashore apparently, in according to this legend, in County Wicklow, an eastern kind of quarter, portion of the country, um, and he's not well greeted by the townspeople there, by the by the locals who hurl uh, rocks and abuse at him. Um, and all of them miss Patrick, miraculously, because nothing can touch him. Um, and they all kind of miss him, whatever. But his unlucky sidekick, in this case, gets smashed in the face by one of these rocks. Mm. And all his teeth are knocked out. And this individual becomes nicknamed Montach, which means like toothless person, gummy face, whatever. <laughs> and so Montach travels around and eventually comes back to the place in Miklo. Uh, and he establishes a church there, Kil Montach. And that's that's how... It, it then garners the name of the county to this day is, is based on this, this figure associated with St. Patrick. Uh, but these stories of him travelling around the country are kind of particularly common. And apart from um, an individual, he also often associated with, he'd have an animal, mm. a holy kind of, um, uh, or a kind of supernatural creature, often a goat or a donkey or something. And sometimes, on account of the fact that St. Patrick was seen at times to bless certain sects and tribes and curse others, it seems to have carried over into folk tradition that he's used as a figure 
So say that I, in my parish, would slag you and yours by saying, oh, St. Patrick never visited your people because the people are too stupid and the place is awfully bleak and, and not worth visiting or something like that. They'd use this kind Very of... personal, Johnny. It was a bit. Was it? <laughs> that they'd use this kind of um, um, idea of the saint to reinforce these parochial rivalries, which mm. are hilarious, some of them. And, or they'd say that, oh, your people stole his goat and ate it. Um, but our people didn't do that or whatever. I have, t- I have two quick examples to show from that. Which and this guy is, is hilarious. He's talking about he, he's in County Cork in the southwestern portion of the country, and he's talking about the Kerry people who are also kind of in this bordering area, uh, refusing to accept responsibility for eating the goat or something like that. And he's not really joking about it. This is this is recorded by Dahio Hogan, and this is Donal O'Sheehan, recorded in 1975. So, Saint Patrick, of course, blessed the hollow from just over the border, from somewhere around the Bacaras, blessed the whole of the hollow, and. There is a story in connection with this that St. Patrick's Saint Patrick's donkey was stolen in Duhalo. I don't know how true that's, but if it is true, it's also probably true that it was a carryman was responsible because the border is very near there at that point. It's kind of local folklore, but any Duhalo, there's very few Duhalo men will admit to it anyway, and that's among a few of the older people whose credibility I want you to question. And this, as a matter of fact, I'm quite prepared to accept it. That it was a carryman was responsible for it, not a Duhaloman. Duhaloman wouldn't do anything like that. It's great, isn't it? Duhaloman wouldn't do anything like that. Hilarious. He's a carryman. He's very, um, very stringent, isn't he? Very serious, yeah. Now, that's the southwestern portion of this island. You know, travel up to Skerries, to the easterly kind of quarter in North County Dublin. And the same narrative being used about the same, used, just used to describe the same thing, or oh, our people would never do that. But the people in this place, they did it, and, and they never admit to it, or whatever. This is, this is Rose O'Connor. And she was recorded in 1980 as part of the Urban Folklore Project. And she's describing the same motif where, where a na- people in a neighbouring parish steal St. Patrick's goat and, and eat him, basically. Tell us about St. Patrick's goat. Do you remember that? Yes, St. Patrick came on to dry land. Yeah. And the Scottish people seized, the, they didn't want him on there. You see, they were all non-sectarian, you know what yeah. I mean. Scottish yeah. was non-sectarian at that time. And he, was come out, he came on to the... Scaries onto dry land, but where Red Island is at the was, do you know where Red Island is? Do, yeah. yeah, well, that's where he, he landed. But he came in on dry land onto Red Island, but to preach to the people and try and convert the Scaries people. And he was preaching to them, and that night they stole his goat and ate him, killed him and ate him at a big bonfire and in the mill hill in Scaries. I see. I see. And they ate his goat, and that's how they got that. Well, the, the, the Scaries people themselves don't tell that story about themselves, do no, they? No, they don't. No, scared, not Scaries. They'd be shy about telling it. They're, they're very sorry. And Scaries, is, from that date, Scaries are um, always linked in. They're all linked in to, into one another through marriage. I see. Is that so? Oh, yeah, Scaries. Conspiracy. Just defamation courts are, are <laughs> yeah. calling out. The Scaries goats. <laughs> oh, the Scaries people don't tell them. It's brilliant. I, lo- I love that those... Um, those kind of local rivalries, but they're they're so from from two opposite kind of portions of the country, same motif being used for the same purposes really, to reinforce local boundaries and say no 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 not us them you know. But again, it's just that tying back to the likes of Chirahan and Morahu. It's all about mm. the local, isn't it? And kind of claiming him, um, for yourselves and yeah. kind of showing yourselves in the best light. Because it kind of just reminds me of this. It's a little a hilarious little song from um Limerick that I found on Duhus.ie and it's just it's about St. Patrick's um, I suppose genealogy and it says St. Patrick was a gentleman he came from decent people he built a church in Dublin town and on it put a steeple his father was a Gallagher his mother was O'Brady his aunt was Anne O'Shaughnessy first cousin to O'Grady and it's just it just brings it home to me that in many many of the tales that we have here in the archive it's about Patrick as a local as much as a national yeah it is, it is true and, and the other thing that you find often in in versions of apocryphal lore regarding the holy family and the saints as they traipse around ireland it'll be just that it'll be you know oh as christ and his mother were traveling through Kerry one day yeah. or they were walking through offaly or so. it's 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 filling in the gaps mm. that dogmatic kind of scripture doesn't offer and say christ and well his mother will meet some pagan deity or something like that and it's that even you know it's as though oh look, these gods are all they all exist they're all manifest in the same kind of cosmos whatever it's not that those ones aren't real and these ones are they all overlap and exist together in this kind of in this scenario and um, but yeah he, he's a figure who's kind of 
in a way he's humanized he's also kind of obviously a highly supernatural figure or a superhero he's battling druids in certain places and dashing their brains out and converting monsters and reptiles and, yeah, yeah and then at the same time he's kind of oh you know it's mrs o'grady's son and this yeah. sort of thing you know it's, it's um one of the other kind of common legends that was told told about him uh, was that he was in the house or uh, he was in an alehouse in a, a tavern uh, which was run by a particularly greedy uh, woman in, in this particular place and she was very stingy with the measures that she was pouring and what did patrick say to her? he, he kind of he said that she'd have to change her ways basically he took her down to the basement where his huge kind of demon was lurking and it was kind of fat and, and delighted with itself mm. and it was growing fat on her selfishness basically mm. And so she was terrified and asked him to please banish it. And he said that he couldn't, that she'd have to mend her ways. So off he goes, travelling around the country. And he comes back to her a while later. And when he comes in, he notices that she's filling these glasses to overflowing. And when she, she kind of go, he goes and approaches her and talks to her, and they go back down to the basement. And this demon has become a kind of shriveled little kind of wretch. And it's, it's, it has wasted away on account of her generosity, basically. And having seen it, they then it's, it's banished and disappears and kind of in a flame and through for whatever. But from that day onward this is the reason we were told that lenten observances for the irish could be broken on saint patrick's day and people would traditionally engage in drinking mm. and drowning the shamrock so-called putting the shamrock in in your in your, whatever you're drinking and that has become a commonplace kind of theme today where there's it's a day of um of revelry and excess and drinking and, and so on in many places it is around the world especially amongst the irish diaspora a- a- absolutely yeah yeah i mean apparently it's the most celebrated um what was it internationally or something that's linked to a national country or whatever but it's celebrated in the most countries more than any other any other festival like it i believe um, that especially when they turn rivers green and pints green and yes no doubt. you name it yeah um but perhaps we should wrap it up i think that's that a nice point um yeah um and to suppose to close instead of the the well it is a treat from the archive but it's again since this edition has been dedicated to Finbar Boyle on the topic of Drain the Shamrock and so on, it's a fantastic song of his, which we'll um, play now. This was recorded in 1984 at Fork Hill at a, at a singing festival. And this is about the raid on Oni's Bar one night by the guards, basically. This is, but this oh, is a song that Finbar singing, but he also wrote it and composed it, and it shows it just a fantastic, his wit. Um, but yeah, we'll leave you with this, with Finbar Boyle and, and uh, the raid on Oni's Bar, and may he rest in peace, and sure... Well, have a fine St. Patrick's Day. and Drown the shamrock with indeed. care and... In good company. And in very good company. Mm-hmm. And raise a toast to Patrick and Palladius. Indeed. And all who came before us. Indeed. Right, here's to us. Sláin. Sláin, how are you? I'll sing it on, just on condition that the door is kept shut and that one of the participants is kept out while I'm singing it. <laughs> <laughs> one evening I lay down to crows three days thread to a bar that is famous for doing a late thread in spirits and beer and in red lemonade among company that's kindly and jovial the man from Canali put me at me ears and he sat me down cosy before a great blaze and he filled me a pint and a half and that pleased and another we drop came from Oni. For an hour and a half I drank liquor so rare you would think it was brewed be the gods, I declare. Out of nectar and honey and lotus is fair, sure it only came over the border. <laughs> and at half past eleven we sadly prepared to return to our lodgings back where we were reared. We packed up our bags, we were filled with dull cares, and then only put in a big order. And the tipplers relaxed and returned to their drinks, rejoicing that now they need not feel the pinch. Peter Short finished off the last eighth of an inch, he was sucking since twenty past seven. <laughs> and the music began in an old-fashioned style, you would travel to hear it for many a mile. I was drinking and laughing away all the while, sure I thought I was dead and in heaven. There was lads there from Newry, the Rock and the Hack, some that came from Belfast and that never went back. <laughs> and more live convenient to Carol the Blank and every man Jack Swillen Porter. There was some came from Hill Street and more from the Quay, 
Some cross Midland patriots turn away. In a skein done a mine, they were all in array, but each man kept himself in good order. Now a dirty big guard that was out in the street, on passing the door, heard the music so sweet. And he kicked up his heels and he better retreat to summon up two of his cronies. They quickly returned to the scene of the crime, and they called on the company to fight or resign. Let them in, cried Pat Murphy, we'll only be fined on the night of the guards raided onies. Says the sergeant on entering, what's this I see? And why is so many all out on the spree? Can it be that the country at long last is free? Our conduct it is most nefarious. Sure, sergeant, it's not free, then no need it say. If you wish to drink beer like the rest, you must pay. We'll stay here if we let the clear later day. Sure, you know, in Dundalk, we're gregarious. <laughs> and the guards that went round and they took all our names and they struggled to spell with our feeble wee brains. <laughs> and of some names in Irish, they made a great hymns and more they abandoned forever. <laughs> To the roof the Mulhollands they quickly did claim To regators from the far of the scene of the crime And to watch the old guards making good over time When they gather the lads all together May the devilly hoist them high up on a ramp The sergeant, the guard and the lad with the lamp The dirty men miserable poxy low tramps From the bogs that was dragged up so lowly May they always see suffering, sorrow and pain May their boots never fit, may their belts never strain If they interrupt such a grand evening again As the night of the first raided Oni That their motors may stand, that their noses may run that their necks once so red may turn green in the sun <laughs> That their teeth may turn black and fall out one by one That starvation may make them grow bony <laughs> That their arses may fester and drop to their heels <laughs> That their last day in minutes be tempered with squeals <laughs> That the maidens forever, the jigs and the reels Were the devil for raiding poor Oni. <laughs>